0: Let us pray. Silence in us any voice but yours, O God. And in response to these sacred readings for this season of Advent, waiting, hoping, watching, open our hearts to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just moments ago, Tina reminded our children that this is a season of new starts. We heard an Old Testament lesson where the prophet Zephaniah tells the people of Israel what a new start looks like. Last week, we read the first half of Luke's story about John the Baptist, in which we hear that he came along to tell people about what they needed to do in order to be ready for a new start, and we take up that story today again in the middle. Every time a passage of the Bible is read, particularly in worship, there's a choice being made about where to start reading and where to stop. And it's a choice that influences the meaning of the story. Today's reading about John the Baptist ends in verse 18. As Josh read it, So with many other exhortations, John the Baptist proclaimed the good news to the people. The very next verse, verse 19, adds this. But Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by John the Baptist because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all of the evil things Herod had done, added to them all by shutting John up in prison. Let's talk this morning about what this verse adds to our understanding of the story. Herod, the ruler, was an incredible tyrant. A king in his own land, but a pawn of the Roman Empire by necessity, his huge ego made him an incredible oppressor of his people. As the verse suggests, at that time there was a widely known incestuous affair in which Herod was involved. But his crimes against his people were much more significant. Still today in the Holy Land, you can visit the immense building projects Herod completed only by breaking the backs of his own people. Herod was a tyrant. But as our narrator tells us, his worst crime, over and above all of that, was his attempts to silence his critic, this man in the wilderness named John the Baptist. Without verse 19, I'm afraid we understand this strange character, John the Baptist, in a way that is lacking. We think of him as a simple religious fanatic. We focus on the verses in Scripture that describe him wearing an animal skin, eating locusts and wild honey, baptizing people at the river's edge in the middle of nowhere. No doubt John was fanatical about his beliefs, but he was much more than a fanatic. This man was gaining enough of a following all the way out in the wilderness that when he spoke out against King Herod, he was thrown into prison to keep him quiet. He is the same kind of political dissident being silenced today by tyrants in Russia and in Turkey. John the Baptist might have had the power to topple Herod's rule, or at least to create a lot of inconvenience. And Herod is mad. John the Baptist was one of the good guys. And he was not a lunatic. He was a force to be reckoned with. Now that background means something because if you don't know who John is, who cares what he tells the people to do? Who cares that he tells them to repent, to change their hearts and lives? Who cares when he has the nerve to call them a brood of vipers? When a crazy person uses harsh words against us, we blow them off. But when we get dressed down by someone we respect, it is a totally different story. And that's what's happening here. You brood of vipers, John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In case it gets lost in the strangeness of the language, the core of this message is the part about Abraham. The problem these folks have, these people who came to hear John the Baptist, it has to do with being descendants of Abraham. These people have inherited their religion as a part of who they are, and it has made them lazy. These people coming to John are not horrible people. They are not tyrants like Herod. But their religion has lost its vitality. They are like any one of us who might have been born into a Presbyterian family, gone to worship most weeks of our lives, but have never really thought hard about our faith. Have never really allowed it to have any real impact on our lives. We hear the story of Christmas every December, but we never really do anything about it. And that, says John the Baptist, that is tragic. Don't you realize that God is coming? The world is full of need, material needs, and real spiritual hungers. These people came to hear John the Baptist preach because there is a hole in their lives that needs filling. And he says, be careful. Be careful that you don't miss what is about to take place because it can change your life for the better. Now is your chance. John's delivery is harsh. But the message is wise. And don't miss this, the people were inclined to listen because the words came from the right source. They listened because of who was talking. John the Baptist was on the side of these regular people against their horrible king. He had a personal history of putting his own welfare on the line in order to do what was right. John the Baptist was a man whose wisdom deserved to be taken seriously. And the people who came knew it. When I considered the story in this light, it caused me to think of John Boyle. John Boyle was a retired pastor I knew back in Chicago. He was quite advanced in years, but he still kept an office in our church's counseling center and preached at the church on occasion. John had served in the United States Army in World War II on the European front. He was part of the final ground pushes in France and Germany. He served in the unit that liberated the concentration camp at Dachau and took the Nazi SS guards there into custody. What was amazing about John was not just those experiences he had. He knew how to describe the moral complexities the soldiers had faced. What do you do when you meet a starving, runaway German soldier hiding in an abandoned house? What do you do when you're in charge of an unarmed SS officer who had murdered countless Jews? What do you do when your charge is to march him one-on-one through a deserted part of the forest? Do you march him all the way to the POW camp? Or do you just shoot him yourself? Which act was the most just? Which act was the most merciful? John had made these decisions and had watched others make them, some the same and others differently. John Boyle was not a simple man. He understood the messiness of life and he was not afraid of it. He was a man who had moral authority. When I met John, I was 28 years old, single, and in my first years of ministry. Sometimes a married couple would come to me with problems, and I would tell that, I, I could tell that their problem was a simple one. One or both of them had checked out on their marriage vows. They had become lazy about marriage the way that some of us become lazy about religion. But who was I? And what was I going to tell them? Sometimes I would suggest they go spend an hour with John Boyle. True to form, he never told me any details of his counseling sessions. But sometimes he would sit down next to me the following week at our staff meeting. He'd turn to me with a twinkle in his eye and he'd say... I gave them the old Dutch uncle talk. I'm glad I was never on the receiving end of one of those talks. And then again, maybe at times getting such a talking to might be good for any of us. As I said before, to get a serious talking to from someone you deeply respect is completely different than being preached at by a lunatic. And John the Baptist, like John Boyle, was a man whose words demanded respect because his life demanded respect. You see this play out in the way people respond to John the Baptist. There's a question they ask him. John preaches these harsh words, the ones I read to you before. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Even now the axe is lying at the, at the root of the tree. Repeatedly in this story, each of John's listeners responds not by blowing him off or by walking away. They come to him a few at a time and they ask him earnestly, What then should we do? What then should we do? First it is crowds who come to him. What then should we do? John knew the injustices of his nation and the danger of the gap between rich and poor. He said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Then the story gets more specific. Tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? Oppressive taxation was one of the most socially destructive crimes of the time. It was how Herod built his palaces. Adding one's personal gain to it was even worse, and so John the Baptist said to the tax collectors, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Not a simple command when you work with tyrants and thieves all around you. Also then soldiers asked him, and us, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. In another specific way. John speaks to a situation of fear and intimidation that was tearing their nation apart. John doesn't have a stock response. He doesn't say the same thing to everyone. He takes them a few at a time and he speaks to them in their own situation to tax collectors, to soldiers, to crowds who lived in the land with deep divisions. His preaching is not empty fear-mongering. He is wise. He speaks with authority. He wants to help people turn their lives around. He wants to tell them exactly what the law means when it says, love your neighbor as yourself. I wonder what John the Baptist might say to you. I wonder what he might say to you. There's no reason for me to point it out specifically. You know. If a really wise person spoke to you, someone you respected, someone who knew you, what would they say? Would they suggest that in some way you might want to change your heart and your life? What would they challenge in your life? Would it be your greed or your pride, your laziness or your anger and resentment, your addictions, your idolatry? What do you hold on to so tightly in your life that it keeps you from loving God and from loving other people. If the word came from someone wise, someone you could trust, someone who spoke the words out of great love for you, would you be able to hear it? Would you be able to respond in openness? What then should I do? I read a comment on this story that caught my attention. There's this metaphor John the Baptist uses that's rather frightening. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Sounds like some of us are about to be eternally cast aside. But the story says... John was proclaiming good news to all the people who came to see him. All of those people he called to repent, to change their hearts and their lives. Apparently, none of us have been cast aside. Certainly not yet. What if the axe is lying at the root to cut out the thing that is holding you back? What if the axe is lying at the root to cut out the thing that is holding you back? What if the axe is lying at the root of your greed or your pride or your laziness? Or your anger and resentment or your addictions and idolatries? And what if Jesus is coming to free you of that thing that that is such a burden and wouldn't that be good news John the Baptist said to the people prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God.